0: And so, as I said, we're we're in uh, our Advent series this morning, beginning that. uh, We'll be doing this for the next four weeks. Uh, It's a bit of a tradition here at the Rock Church to say the least that we do this. Over the last seven years, actually, I was checking online in my notes, and that's uh, what we've been doing is uh, taking a time uh, pre-Christmas during Advent to focus our hearts and minds again on the coming of Jesus 2,000 years ago. Although, I must say, if some of you have been paying attention for the last few weeks... How amazing is it that the Holy Spirit has lined up? Because believe me again, I, I did not think of this or plan it this way. But in the last two weeks, we, we spent basically in Luke 21 looking at Jesus' own prophecy about His second coming, about His second advent. And then today, we're going back and looking again at His first advent. So that's an amazing thing. For those of you who might be a little bit new to the whole idea of Advent, basically the word comes from the Latin, the word adventus, uh, which literally means coming or or arrival, uh, most often translated as coming. And so for the next four Sundays, we are going to focus on the first advent of Jesus. But but I I really want to suggest this year that we uh, focus our minds and our hearts a little bit differently. Rather, spending uh, the time that we normally do, a little bit, not too much, but uh, focusing on a little bit of the, uh, you know, the, the wonderful, almost hallmark-type images of Christmas, you know, the wise men and, and a glowing Mary uh, um, at the inn and things like this, which is, which is wonderful. But I thought this year maybe that what we should do is we should be thinking about more about this first Advent in light of our hope for the second Advent of Christ. So let's also then see this. There is a tension between the kingdom already come in Jesus in his first coming and not yet fully realized. There's a tension. And I actually loved it when Aaron first sent me the graphic for our series this year and looked at it. He actually posted it online and put a number of hashtags below the graphic that he chose. One of those hashtags was hashtag distressed. And of course, that's referring in graphic terms to the way the graphic is made to look with the cloth background. and It looks like it's kind of aged, etc. But as soon as I saw that and the hashtag, I thought, yes, <laughs> yes. This Advent, probably more so than any Advent for most of us in our lifetime, is a distressing time, without doubt. So I, I want to suggest to you that this fits really, really well with this year and with this Advent. But I want you to think about it. It was exactly the same way for Mary and Joseph. They were distressed. Everyone in that day was. In fact, that's the way it's been for the last two and a half millennia As people have been distressed, as we'll see in our text for today. But the good news is what we do celebrate and of course we look forward to even to this day, is that Jesus did come. He did come. Hope arrived, and the distress was relieved in a major way. So, for this Christmas season, we've chosen our theme as Advent, Servant, Savior, Sovereign. I'm hoping that in every one of these messages, today will mostly be focused on the suffering servant But that we will see in our series, we'll see this. Our goal will be to see the suffering servant that was given to us by God, promised by God to come and save us, to rescue us. And he came also as our sovereign king. He inaugurated his kingdom on the very day that he was born into Bethlehem. That's why they came and gave gifts. They came seeking, where is the king of the Jews who was born on this day? so there's also something else that I want to suggest to you today, and it might be actually your outline for today's message. And that is that there's a bit of a pattern that we see, and I want to highlight this pattern for you because we're going to see it in today's text and in some of the others that we will look at this month. And it is a pattern that is seen throughout the Old Testament. And it's this pattern. It's the pattern of, number one, the problem. And then there's the promise. And then there's the provision. So that's your outline for today. problem... Promise and provision. The first evidence of this pattern begins in the very beginning of the Bible. You all know this, right? It it was all really, really good in Genesis 1 and 2. And then Adam and Eve bought into the lie that if if they just ate this fruit, they would be just like God. Really, it was more about we could be God. We could be God's. Well, that, of course, resulted in the first big problem. Sin, brokenness, rebellion, death, separation from God. What did our God do? Well, in Genesis 3.15, He made a promise. And this is the beginning of this pattern. He said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and He shall, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel." So even on that that rebellious day, God promised to send an offspring of a woman who would crush the head of the serpent once and for all, literally, and God provided that offspring the child that Mary birthed on Christmas Day, the first Christmas Day, her son Jesus. And so this pattern repeats itself throughout the Old Testament. All of the stories of the Old Testament, the unfaithfulness of the people of Israel is about a problem, and it's about a promise that God made in His prophecy, and then the provision, which is culminating, obviously, in Jesus. So I want you to keep that outline in mind as we go through our text for today. I want to read our text, Isaiah 42, verses 1 to 9 for you, then I'll pray one more time and we'll dive in. Read with me. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. I will give you as a covenant to the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare before They spring forth. I tell you of them. Pray with me, would you? Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord God, thank you. Thank you that uh, you help identify for us as if we don't know that we have problems. Problems that are of our own doing, Problems that are the result of our turning from you as our one true God. So, Lord, thank you. Thank you for being gracious and merciful. Thank you for making promises to rescue us, to save us. And thank you for keeping your promises. Lord, we are here today, those of us who have trusted in Jesus, who are here to worship you and worship him because you kept your promise and you keep keeping your promises. So thank you for that. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would help me today, especially. Lord, I love this story. I love what you're doing here. I just pray, Lord, that we will all see it, we'll really be moved by it, not by me, but by you, Holy Spirit, that you will speak through me and through these words. And I pray these things in Jesus' worthy name. Amen. So, this text is actually, I didn't know this until I started studying for this passage. I should have, I guess. But it's, it's actually one of um, uh, four um, songs in the book of Isaiah that are referred to as His Suffering Servant prophetic songs. Um, all four of them are prophetic about the, about the coming suffering servant. Uh, to best understand this part of Isaiah, these verses that I've just read for you, we must start with the very first word. And that very first word that is in the text is the word behold. It's an amazing uh, Hebrew word um, which literally means look. Every time it's used, it's it's indicating what is going to be said next is incredibly important, especially coming from the, the mouth of God. Behold. Very important. But In order for us to understand this, we're in chapter 42, we need to at least go back to the last seven verses in chapter 41, because this word, behold, is used twice, and it not only tells us something about our text today, it tells us the context. It helps us understand why God, the Lord God, is saying this word, behold, right here and right now. In verse 24 of chapter 41, he says this, behold, God talking. You are nothing, you are nothing. And your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. So, if you go back even further in, well, the whole book of Isaiah, but particularly chapters 40 and 41, you will see that Isaiah is pointing the people of Israel to the big problem. The problem is idolatry. And the problem is idols and the worship of idols rather than the one true God, their God. What's interesting here is in this verse right here that we're looking at, if you look at it carefully and you see it in the context, what you'll see is this. God Himself, the Creator of the heaven and the earth, is speaking to the idols. He's speaking to the demonic powers behind some of these idols. We, we think sometimes these are, just, these are just images. These are just like statues that you have to nail to a shelf, otherwise they'd fall over. I mean, no, there, there's, there, there is evil behind them. They're inanimate, but there is evil behind them. And so look at the words this way. God is speaking to them specifically and saying, you're nothing. You are nothing. You cannot do anything. And those who worship you are really foolish people. And then he goes on in verse 29, and now he's speaking to the people of Israel. He's speaking to you and I when he says this Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing, their metal images are empty wind. So, in both of these cases, and so far in the book of Isaiah, all of this is pointing to the issue of idolatry. At this point in the life of the people of Israel, uh, they are in Babylon when they're experiencing Isaiah's prophecy some 125 years after he actually wrote it, it's all coming true. They're in Babylon. They're in exile. All of their Jewish customs are unwelcomed. They are surrounded every single day by these Babylonian pagans who worship as many as, historians tell us, 2,000 different idols, different gods. And they're immersed in this. It's all around them. And so they're trying to figure out while they're in captivity and they're in Babylon, in exile, they're trying to figure out, well, how do we fit in? I mean, how do we fit in in such a way that we we can just survive all this? And so what ends up happening, sadly, is they end up making idols too. So think about it. This place is not their home. They, They want to go home. They're no longer in Kansas. So what happens to them, we need to be careful here, is probably the same thing that happens to all of us. I'm sure it is, actually. First, what we, we know happens to them and can happen to us is they, they become disillusioned. God, why did you let this happen to us? This was, this was not supposed to happen. Why did you let this happen? They get discouraged very easily, thinking that God is, is not there for them and that He's not providing for them, at least in the way that they would hope, and, and He's abandoning them. And then, of course, when tragedy strikes, going into exile will be one of them, but people start dying, well, their faith begins to weaken and weaken. And it's at this point, secondly, that they, like you and I, are now susceptible to becoming assimilated in one way or another into the culture. And so, at the end of the day, like you and I here today, they were simply, listen, looking for... Hope. That's what they were looking for, something to put their trust in that might give them hope. So, let's understand this at this point. The problem Isaiah is speaking about that God is putting out is the idolatry of the people of God. Idolatry in the culture, of course, Jesus, God is concerned about. But He's most concerned about idolatry amongst His own people. Now, to our modern ears, I know, we've been over this before. We hear the word idol, and, yeah, we think about 2,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago. You know, pagan gods and statues and images and people bowing down to them, you know. Golden calves, if you're biblical, right? Well, we need to begin very careful. What, what happens today, even for many Christians, many of us, is knowingly uh, or unwittingly, we simply see people all around us putting their hope and their trust in all kinds of idols, and we see either, and we can't really resist any more than they can, and and then we get to a point in our frustration and in our lack of hope and our lack of faith that we're thinking, well, you know what, Um, this, this Christian life is a really, really long haul, and it's not exactly going exactly the way that I had hoped, so maybe... Maybe some of these things might be helpful. Maybe some of these things might actually give us hope. We see everyone else around us struggling, which everyone today is, right? Especially in these days. Struggling with anxiety, with fear, looking for something, anything, some way of finding hope. Finding hope. And we think, well, listen, Maybe what we need to do is just just lay it down for a bit and bow down and worship the same gods and idols that everyone else is giving themselves to. Why fight it? Why fight it? Why not follow all of the people on social media who are, at least in our mind anyway, doing something to combat the anxiety, the fear, the frustration, the oppression in our world? And regardless of the means, as long as it justifies the ends... Why not give yourself to that? That might bring hope into your life and into the life of the world. Why not worship all the same altars at all the same altars and potentially maybe find hope? And of course, Christian, you should know this. (laughs) But there's a problem with that, isn't there? You can know this to be true even if you're not a Christian, but you will not know the solution, so that's an even bigger problem. The problem is, you know this, I know this, our, our idols, the idols that we give ourselves to, that everyone else is giving themselves to, will and do and will again fail us. We, we give, Listen. sometimes we give and we give ourselves over a decade, two decades, to the same idol. And, and we always think, well, I'll stop that, I'll stop that, it's not working, I'll give myself more to it. Like, maybe I wasn't trying hard enough to find appeasement and, and to find hope in it. And we just do it over and over and eventually, eventually, we do this in the vain hope that eventually they will come through. But no. In the end, they actually rob us of everything, including and especially our hope. I've repeated this quote many times. I'm gonna put it on screen for you this morning. It's from someone that you know that I admire very much from his book, Counterfeit Gods. Tim Keller, I believe, gives us the best definition for us in modern times, in modern times, of what an idol is. He said this, it is Anything, okay? Please see this word. It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything that you seek to give you what only God can give. Anything that is so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. It's anything. And sometimes it's, it's, it's the smallest of things that we don't realize. It's like sunshine and warmth. When it's not there, where's my hope? It can be an idol. It can be anything. It can be anything. So now I hope we've seen the problem. <laughs> the problem that Isaiah wants to get at and, and wants to show God wants us to see is, is, is our idolatry is our worshiping things more than we worship God. So we've seen this problem. And what I, what I think is so beautiful about this text, about the way he goes about it, is he provides us with this beautiful, beautiful contrast. It's an incredible contrast. He's already said, behold these idols, right? Be, behold how useless they are at providing anything, let alone hope. And then he says... Behold my servant. He contrasts all that with these words Behold my servant in whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. So God is telling them and us here today that his servant is the promise, his chosen servant is the promise. He's also the solution. He's the answer to all of our problems, and the best part, He is our ultimate hope. That's the promise that God puts on His servant for us, as we will see. So why? Well, as we will see, and I hope you all know to be true, God's servant is able to do for the people of Israel and able to do for you and I what no idol could ever possibly do. There's nothing that you and I wrongly give ourselves to, whether whether our money, our wealth, or the pursuit of it, whether our possessions, whether our career and our identity that we get in the things that we do, whether our husband, our wife, our children. Yes, the things that we can sometimes wrongly give ourselves to to provide us with ultimate satisfaction and hope it is God's servant only that can perfectly do this. And he goes far beyond our wildest experiences and our hope. So let's look at in this verse, especially, but we'll see some more, at what God himself sees in his servant. I just want to encourage you again, like this morning, focus your heart and your minds on Jesus. I mean, have an image of Him in your mind and your heart walking this earth, speaking and preaching in parables, the kind of person that He was. And then let's see how God sees His servant. So, first He said this about His servant, Behold My servant, whom I uphold, My chosen, in whom My soul delights. And, and, and essentially what God is telling Him, listen, I want you to imagine this picture I just thought of it this week, and it struck me. Maybe it struck you guys before, but it it, it never had struck me this way before. While these words are being spoken to Isaiah to write down by the Father, Jesus is present, hearing these very words. He's there. These are being spoken about him. And essentially what he's saying is, I have appointed him. Jesus, right here. I've appointed him. I chose him. And I'll tell you what, I will uphold Him." That's our heavenly Father. That's the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ when He lived His earthly life. It also tells us that He has done everything, everything to provide the solution that we all need in Christ Jesus to our biggest problems. And and he, He tells us that He's going to fully equip Jesus, for this work that he's sending him to do. He's going to fully resource him. He's going to give him all he needs to do what he's sending him to do and accomplish. And especially we understand that when he says the words, in whom my soul delights. Those words are in the present perfect tense, which means they literally are saying they're true now, but I'm already seeing him accomplishing everything that I'm sending him to do, and my soul delights in him in His accomplishment of everything that He's been sent to do. He wanted the people of Israel in captivity, in exile to know that. He wants you and I to know that, that this is His servant, this is His Son. Second again from verse 1, He says, "'I put My Spirit upon Him, He will bring forth justice to the nations.'" I think I hear some amens on the live stream. Anybody? (laughs) He's going to bring justice to the nations. I think for some of us here today, when we think of the subject of justice and its elevated importance to our modern progressive world, um, we, we think that that's super important today. Well, let me be really clear. It would have been a bomb to the ears of those in Israel in those days, too. (laughs) Distress? This has been going on for millennia. Justice has been sought and wanted for. Millennia, whether justice that is the antithesis of the unfaithful and unjust religious leaders in their day, and again throughout history and certain governing powers, certainly, this servant will have the Spirit of God upon him, fully upon him, and he will lead faithfully and with justice. So, of course, we have to unpack that word. When we hear the word justice today, we think mostly I believe, of civil justice. That is something that brings about a fair an equitable uh, and just society. You add to that the vaunted phrase, social justice, and well, even most Christians are going to be, yes, we're for that. We're for that. What God has in mind here, and Jesus as well, is certainly aspects of both of these, however, behind the very idea of justice that His servant, that Jesus brings into this world that will accomplish true justice, behind all of that is one thing that our world doesn't have without Him. It's called the Word of God. It is the truth. We need the truth. And that, of course, is found physically in Jesus Himself and in His very Word. Do you remember the words that he finished with in Luke 21 at the end of his parable about his second coming? He said, heaven and earth will pass away, but what? Will not pass away? Ever? My word. My word. That's a shocking statement. And the reason why he says that is because his word is perfect, and it's true, and it's by his word that justice is brought into this world. So the truth is, human justice it's not really justice. I heard a number of different commentaries and and, and authors writing about this and, and, and just asking the question about, well, someone robs your house, and okay, so, you know, uh, you lose some, some, some material possessions and whatever, and and the, the, they find the culprits, but your stereo or whatever, it's already all gone and sold on whatever, and and what's the, what's the best that can come out of that? Well, the, the person might get a short sentence and and, uh, or if at all, <laughs> and, but, but how does that, I, I was robbed one time uh, coming home from a youth group that I was leading and I came into the home and, and, and I didn't know it at the time, but a guy knocks on the door and he's like, hey, yeah, I just uh, wanted to let you know that, yeah, it's good you came home because your door was open and I just closed it for you. And I'm like, really? And so I just went back to church, came home later, every piece of electronics in my living room was gone. He was trying to keep me from going to the living room to find his buddy. And I'll tell you, here's how it ended up with me. It was a violation. We lost stuff. The insurance company replaced it. It didn't change the fact. I didn't feel there was any justice. It can get worse, right? Where's the justice in someone who's killed, murdered? Where do you find justice in that? So look, in, in human justice, at the end of the day, it's not really justice at all. It doesn't do anything to really settle the hurt, the pain, the forever trauma that some people live with. It doesn't do anything at all. At best, what it can provide is a level of punishment that might give us some gratification and maybe some form of restitution, most often financially. The justice that Jesus is bringing to this world and to the nations is restoration. It's very different, and it's up to him to accomplish that. It is. So, this servant whom God is speaking about is going to bear witness to the truth of God's Word, and it's the truth that the world desperately needs. And this servant is going to bear witness to it, and look what it says at the end of verse 1, to the nations. He's going to bear witness of the Word of truth to the nations. And what's really interesting is this in this passage. How is he going to bring about this justice? How's he gonna do it? I think this part of the message in the text is the biggest lesson for us today, especially today in the world that we live in. And so as we put on verses two and three on screen, I want you just to think about this. Pay careful attention to these next words because this is how Jesus is going to accomplish justice says this, he will not cry aloud, he will not lift up his voice, or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Let me read those last six words slowly, in all caps in my notes. (laughs) He will faithfully Bring forth justice. I mean, in those words, do you see you and me? <laughs> well, no, we don't. It, it is all a work of God, this kind of justice. It's all a work of God. However, we do know this. If He, in the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, is in you and in me, we will be used by Him to bring His justice to this world. And, and, and how will he, how will we go about it? Well, just like it's been done by, since the dawn of time, right? <laughs> right? You all know how that, is, how that is, with power and with might, right? And, and how is it that this is most often displayed in our culture today especially, but back in that day as well, by the person who yells and screams the loudest. The one, the one who tweets in all caps, right? That's how it's accomplished, right? That's how it's displayed today. Speaks the loudest, tweets the loudest, displays strength and power, and if necessary, overpowers others, especially canceling all of his opponents. And and that's how someone with power wins, right? This seems very different. The way Jesus is going about it is incredibly different. So, So listen. The Holy Spirit's goal today in you and I is to do what? To transform you through the power of the Word of God and through His power, the Spirit's power, into the likeness of Jesus Christ so that we live and behave and act like He does. Well, that's interesting. That's interesting. So the way of Jesus this servant whom God promised is not to come upon us and in doing it that other way increase our fear and anxiety. He will never shout us down, nor should we. He will certainly not self-promote, which is why we see the words in the street, right? It's but the marketplace. He will not self-promote. No, the truth we are told is that this servant will establish his perfect justice in a way that is non-confrontational, not by quarreling or seeking political power, but, listen, by kindness, gentleness, concern, and care for the least, the last, and the lost. As strong and powerful as this servant will be and has been, as righteous as he will be, he will be known for being tender to the weak. And you know what? When it's all said and done, we are all weak. Even those who yell too loud, and too often. Actually, it's a sign of weakness, if you think about it. So, today, in these distressing days, if you're feeling overly anxious, afraid and not seeing much hope in your foreseeable future or the foreseeable future of our world, of our planet, when you get to the point where you're honestly feeling like you're a bruised reed or your little bit of light, that little bit of hope in you is gonna get snuffed out, Please remember these words of Jesus. You all know them, but meditate on these words of Jesus found in the Gospel of Matthew when he said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. God's not finished telling the people of Israel on that day or you and I today some of the things about his suffering servant that are so wonderful. We know that he was crucified, that he was buried, he died. We know that he rose again. We know that he said he would come again. So we're still still waiting. We're in that in-between of the kingdom but not yet fully realized. And so there's... There's a struggle for us in these days. Verse 4 of Isaiah 42 is critical and comforting. He says this about this wonderful servant. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. So this verse, in this verse, God, God's promised ser- servant, we are told, will not He will not fail. He will not, like we often do, grow faint. He will not be discouraged or dissuaded. He will accomplish the will of the Father, and He will accomplish it perfectly. In this time, in this day and age, it is His will to be doing that through the church, through you and I. And so, so maybe that's why you're going to find that in the Scripture, the, the Apostle Paul and Peter and John and James repeatedly say things like this to us. Why? Because we need to hear these things. Paul said in the book of Galatians in chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, he said this, and let us not grow weary. What, what it, does it say? Let's not grow weary of the pandemic? <laughs> does it, this, what is it? of? doing good. Oh. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap. If we do not give up, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are the house of faith. Please let me state that a little bit more clearly. The emphasis is on especially those in the church. God goes on as we come to our conclusion in Isaiah 42, 6 and 7, and he says these words to the people of Israel, and to you and I here today, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness, he's speaking to Jesus, to the servant. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. So, this is one final and powerful promise that ultimately solves our greatest problem, and it's the provision of God's servant who we seem see here. God says, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. These are words that speak of His ultimate authority over all things. Useless idols. I am the Lord. I have called you, my servant, to be righteous. You are righteous, and you will continue to be righteous. I will care for you every day and in every way, he says. And then look at this. This is so amazing. He says, I will give you, meaning you will be my provision. I will give you this servant's provision for you and me, for the whole world who will trust in him and then see this as a covenant for the people. Do you see that? He doesn't say, I'm going to send you into this world and you're going to make a covenant with the Romans or with whoever's in power. No. You're my promise. That's what a covenant is. And I'm going to give you as a covenant to my people. He will be that covenant. And that covenant, by the way, is, we should know today, the new covenant in His blood. That's the provision that God gave to us. You remember that on the night before he was betrayed, Jesus referred to this covenant, this promise. It's recorded this way, and he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. Problem, promise, solution, the provision of a covenant in the flesh whose shed blood forgives our sins. The passage ends today with, again, I am the Lord. That is my name. I love that. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare, before they spring forth, I tell you of them. So again, he emphasizes the fact that I am the Lord. There is no other God before you. I am the one true God. Our God's name is above all names. His glory is far above any idol. And one last time he says, behold. His promise by saying, look, the problem is behind you. I promise you a new covenant, and I'm telling you in advance of this provision coming completely true. And why? Why am I telling you, people of Israel, why am I telling you, people of the Rock Church in Squamish, British Columbia, or anyone else that's watching wherever you are, why is He telling us this? So that we may trust in His suffering servant, His only Son, and so that we might have eternal life and real hope. Pray with me, would you?